Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. So we're in the series Altars, uh, and here, here's where I want to start today. Each one of us has been made in the image of God. And part of that being made in His image means He's given us the ability to dream and the desire to imagine things, a better future, a better career, better relationships, a better world. And in part, God's given people the ability to turn dreams into reality. So for those of us who know God, as, as part of what God is asking us, he's asking us to turn to God so that he can shape those dreams in our lives for a better world, and then he can help lead us and help us lead the world to that better place as well. And dreams, aren't, they're exciting, aren't they? It's fun to get a dream, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, dreams can also encapsulate some of the most frustrating, discouraging times of life. When a dream is not coming to f- pass as fast as we want to, or it's looking different than we imagined it would be, or especially frustrating are those times when dreams end up being longer than our lifetime and we realize that we may not get to see the fulfillment of this, right? I really believe today that as part of our Lenten Leap of Faith season here that God wants to rekindle some dreams. He wants to take the weight the frustrating weight of some of those dreams off of you. And he wants to reaffirm and maybe even clarify dreams he's birthed in your heart, maybe even let you know today that a certain dream you have is actually from him for your life. Today we're going to talk about some of the most weird and strange altar encounters with God, I think recorded in all of the Bible. Uh, yet those encounters encapsulate who God is to us and how we relate to God in a way that goes to the very core of what it means to follow Jesus, and it goes to the very core of how God works in our lives through dreams in the process of fulfilling them, especially dreams that He's birthed in our hearts for a promising future. The altar experience we're going to look at are from the life of Abraham. A uh, great biblical character claimed by the Jews, Christians, and Muslims as one of the all-time great people of faith in all of human history. And yet what I love about Abraham is that what challenges me most in studying him is that Abraham's life is almost every way other than a few God encounters that he has was just an ordinary businessman's life, a Bedouin rancher. There's nothing spectacular or profound about most of his life. He didn't write great books of wisdom. He just simply was a rancher and a businessman. And yet his story inspires us and instructs us with profound godly wisdom even today about faith in God and what it means and what it looks like to pursue and fulfill and live in a dream or promise God has for our lives. So before we jump in, we need to clarify some differences in cultural understanding. While we're going to be looking at in a moment uh, is a common, what we're going to be looking at in a moment is the common way that covenants were made back in the time across all of the Middle East. And actually today in some very isolated areas, it's still practiced what, this way that we're going to see. Now, we often think of the word covenant and we think of covenant and restrictions with homeowner associations. That's about the extent of that word in most of our vocabulary. But covenant in Abraham's day meant something so much more. 
It was a legally binding contract. We get that. But it also described a very personal relationship and commitment to another person. Covenants were used in marriage. They were used between rulers and subjects. Covenants were also used as kind of a combination last will and testament and insurance policy for your family. So, for example, let's say my ancient Ottoman relatives were family a family of Bedouins in, Abra- in Abraham's time. And the Johnsons were another family back then. And the Ottomans and the Johnsons were really good friends, right? Well, in that day, there was no Social Security. There was no life insurance, no banks, no investments, no real protections for my estate and my family if something were to happen to me. So I might go to my friend Johnson and say to him, let's make a covenant. If I die, you'll take care of my family and my property if I do not have an heir old enough to do so at the time. And and if that same thing happens to you, I'll do that for you. And if someone attacks me, you're going to come to my aid, even if it costs you your life in the process, and I will do the same thing for you if someone attacks you. And if someone murders me, you will be the one to hunt them down and bring them to justice. And if someone does that for you, I will do to you, I will do the same for you. So we will look in a moment at what seems like, I think, the oddest part of the covenant ceremony portrayed in Genesis 15. But there were actually other aspects of the covenant that we see throughout Genesis and other places that were actually uh, implemented by God at different times and what we're going to look at. And, and Abraham would have understood them, but we, but we probably would miss it when we read it. Like when this covenant uh, was done, uh, at the end, they would typically um, change their names to show the covenant relationship by sharing with one another part of your name. So instead of Johnson and Ottleman, it might be Ottleson and John's man or something strange like that, right? So when God changes Abram's name to Abraham, the Hebrew actually makes it really clear what's actually happening, happening is God is sharing with Abraham part of his name, Yahweh. In some instances, the two parties would also go further and they would actually exchange sons. So I would raise Johnson's son as my own and Johnson would raise my son as his own. And we actually see this as being a significant meaning and part of what God is doing that we're going to look at a little bit later in Genesis 2 when God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and then God sending Jesus later on. The covenant in Abraham's time was deeply sacrificial and deeply serious as to the commitments and the forever binding nature of the commitments. Uh, This is odd in our day because we don't see that a lot. I mean, marriage is our day is probably the closest thing to a covenant. And we still retain some of that, even in the language we use in our vows till death do us part. In most of uh, parent-child relationships, the relationship is a covenantal one saying, basically, I will always be there no matter what. I mean, none of us like when our children are sick, but we willingly sacrifice our sleep, our time, our money, and at all costs, we will care for them. And none of us like our children when they mess up and disobey, but we will love and pursue them anyway. As parents, you understand much about the covenantal relationship of sacrifice at all costs. So here's the point. If your most deep, loving, best relationships in life result from covenantal love and commitment, then that's the same kind of relationship God wants with each of us. And in fact, he insists on having with each of us. 
So to set up the covenant of alt- the altar of promise with Abraham, let's go back and set the stage by looking at the initial place the promise is given to Abraham, even though the covenant comes a little bit later. In Genesis 12, it says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and you in and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Wow. If God showed up to you and said that, what would you be thinking? I mean, remember, Abraham at this time is an ordinary pagan worshiping person. And the one true God shows up in a way that he knows it's God. And what a promise. You will become a great nation. Your name will be great. I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing to everyone on earth. So he says to Abraham, get up and go. I don't, you don't know where you're going. That's okay. I'll show you when you get there. And then after months of preparation and travel, Abraham arrives in the land. The story goes on and shows us as, as God says, and God says to him, and when he arrives there, he says, look, as far as the eye can see, all this land will be yours one day. And can you imagine that moment? And then the story goes on and we see Abraham walking through the land. Can you imagine the excitement of that? I mean, this is like, you know, from the time God first spoke to him, it's like, okay, now I'm dreaming of my dream home. And this is like the first time you actually get to walk into what is your dream home. And you go, this is it. I can hardly wait to put my contract down on this property. That's kind of the difference. That's what's going on here. So the story goes on and through some setbacks and detours, Abraham keeps having faith and returning to the promise of God and returning to faith in the promise of God. And then Years later, we come to chapter 15, and we see Abraham doubting again, asking God the question, how can I know this is going to happen? Isn't that the question that we often ask when a dream we have or a promise from God isn't coming to be as we hope? And God says this, he says, fear not, Abraham. I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And as much as he likes him, Eliezer is an employee, a servant he picked up along the way. Do you hear the weary, tired obedience in Abraham's voice? I mean, Abraham knows he's, he's already become rich and powerful and influential. There's been so much that has happened, so many things that point to the promise beginning to be fulfilled, but not the main thing. The main thing hasn't happened yet. There's no child, no son. Do you ever get weary and tired of carrying the weight of a dream or a, a vision or a promise that isn't yet fulfilled like you think it should be? I mean, maybe it's a, maybe for you it's a dream for your family or, or your marriage or your children or your career. Maybe it's a dream of making a difference in some area of the community that is near and dear to your heart like special needs or poverty or abuse or some other thing. And you, you face when you're trying to work your way out in a dream and to see it come to reality, you face those times when you feel alone, when you feel the weight of the dream 
And in your prayers, you're saying, God, God, I get it that this dream is good and, and this passion is good. And I think it probably is from you for my life and some good things are happening. But God, I have no child. The main thing, where is it? It's not here. And you find yourself frustrated and struggling to hope. And God speaks to Abraham again in a profound encounter at night in verse 4 of chapter 15. And I I suspect this happens at night because I, I picture Abraham in bed stirring and questioning and wondering and stressing, unable to sleep. And, and God begins to speak to him and, and, he, and he affirms the promise to have him go outside and look at the starry sky, the clear starlit sky and says, yes, Abraham, the promise is good. And your descendants, they're going to be more numerous than the stars. And once again, the text says, Abraham believed God. And verse 6 says, God counted it to Abraham, his faith as righteousness. In other words, he was really pleased with Abraham's faith-filled response. And yet in the midst of that pleasing faith-filled response, let's pick up the text in verse 6. It says, Abraham, but Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God said to him, and this is where the strange covenant ceremony starts. He said, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these and he cut them in half and he laid them over against one another. Some actually refer to this covenant as the ceremony of the blood path. You take animals, you cut them in half and you arrange them separated from one another to have separated one another that the blood spills out into the middle of the path and pools in the middle. And then you make your agreement by walking through the blood. And typically the greater party goes first unless it's a king. Kings often only had their subjects go through the blood path. But each person going through the blood path is actually saying, may what was done to these animals be done to me if I do not keep this covenant. So as we continue reading the text, what we see happening is really shocking. God, the king of all kings, comes and he reaffirms once again the promise in even more detail in verses 13 through 16. And then in verse 17, we see God going through the blood path. It says, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, the smoking fire pot, the flaming torch, these are all symbols, common symbols all throughout the Old Testament of the presence of God, like, like God's fire and smoke coming down on Mount Sinai and many other places where God's presence becomes very manifest and visible to people. You see this kind of thing. This, is, this, this short verse, this is actually the essence of the gospel shared in what I think is one of the most powerful and concise ways in all of the Bible. God, the king of kings, walks through the blood path, essentially saying to us, may I, God, be condemned to death if I do not keep the terms of this covenant. God, the perfect one, is absolutely guaranteeing the promise will come to pass that he's made to Abraham. Now, can I just take a, a second here to make something wonderful really explicit? The Bible is clear about this very thing we're talking about it all throughout that this promise given to Abraham is actually for all of us. 
that God is making a covenant with every single person who would follow him, that if you will follow me, I will bless you and make you a blessing. This covenant is the gospel of God to all of us who would follow. If this were a normal ceremony then, so Abraham would then go through and say the same thing. Abraham would basically say, I, Abraham, keep the term, will keep the terms of the covenant even if it costs me my life. And if I don't keep it, let me be torn to pieces just like these animals. But God knows Abraham can't keep the covenant perfectly as he demanded. So if you look back at that one short verse, what you see is God does something astoundingly out of the ordinary that nobody in Abraham's day would have had even a frame of reference to understand and believe whatever happened. God doesn't ask Abraham to, nor does he let Abraham walk through the blood path. Instead, the text shows us God walks through it a second time. Meaning God is walking through on behalf of Abraham saying, if you, Abram, do not keep the terms of this covenant, I, God, will condemn myself to be torn to pieces and put to death in your place. This is the gospel. This is what it means to know the love of God and to follow God. This is what it means to live in the power of the promise of God and the dream for life and see it come to pass. It's not a cooperative effort. It's not, if I can do more good than bad, then I'll be good enough and God will help me fulfill the dream. It's not, God helps those who help themselves. It's not a partnership. It is all God. God is calling us to an utter absolute dependence and trust in him saying, Abram, may I be cut off if I don't do my part of the bargain and may I be cut off if you don't do yours. I'm going to take the curse of the covenant for both of us. And Abraham, I'm going to bless you. Even if it means that I have to die for your sin and failure. And it did mean that. Centuries later, darkness comes down on Calvary as Jesus was being crucified. And why was Jesus there? Because Jesus was taking the curse of this covenant on himself. Paul actually comments that in Galatians 3, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, the covenant, by becoming a curse for us. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus took the covenant, the curse of the covenant that our sin deserved, And that simply leaves you and I free to walk in the promise of the covenant, the promise of God to bless us and make us a blessing if we will simply receive that gift of God's love. See, God is actually in this text saying the ultimate, I've got this. So do you see the connection to your life? God's saying the dreams I've placed in your heart even if you don't know they're from me. And the promises and the dreams I've spoken over your life that you are aware of are from me. It's not on you. You don't need to carry the weight of fulfilling that. You don't need to carry the weight of saving yourself. You don't need to carry the weight of becoming meaningful and successful and having a good life that leads to a lasting, rich meaning in your life. He's saying to you, I, God, carry that for you. And I, God, will guarantee that for you. 
if you'll just receive my gift and follow. Recently, I was watching a show that involved Black Hawk helicopter pilots. And what I noticed is there's always two pilots in the Black Hawk. And, and when one pilot wants to take the control and fly, they say, I have the controls. And then the other pilot doesn't take their hand off the control until they say, you have the controls. See, this altar is all about God stopping us from going through the blood path and saying, I have the controls. But God's waiting for you to say, you have the controls. God's inviting you to absolute dependence and trust in him and in his ability to make your life significant, to fulfill promises in your life. So immediately following this blood path experience between the end of chapter 15 and the first verse of chapter 16, there's probably a span of years. We don't exactly know, but it it seems to be years. And, And 16 starts out this way. It says, now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Do you feel the blunt hollowness, the discouragement in that statement still? And what we see in that chapter then is Abraham does this whole Ishmael thing. If you're familiar with the story, he basically takes back the controls and and he, and he tries to help God out in fulfilling the promise because he still doesn't have a child. So he sleeps with his wife's servant to make sure something happens, that he has a blood relative one way or another. And isn't it true that we so easily, when we're frustrated and waiting for a dream, we, we so easily take back the controls I mean, especially look around. We're, mo, mo, we're, you're just, you're smart. You're successful leaders. And much like Abraham, we, we just, we just make things happen ourselves. We read the leadership books, the how-to books, the motivational seize the day books. We make our strategic plans and all that stuff is fine. But, but we take the responsibility for fulfilling the promise back on our own shoulders. And like Abraham, we all too often corrupt the promise or mess it up in some way. And some of you know that you've messed up a promise and you wonder if that promise is now gone. I was thinking this past week uh, about this whole thing and and just pondering and I remembered a conversation I had with a friend of mine that took place about 20 years ago. It was the end of a long couple days of training and coaching and and we were sitting tired and just kind of relaxed in the evening eating dinner and and Tom looked at me and said, you know, Ross, I, I, I sold my birthright a couple years ago. He said, I, because of my impatience with how long it was taking for God to bring his promise to pass. And he went on to tell me how he had bailed on a ministry job that he was in. A, he had been a teaching pastor at a, a larger church. And because of the frustration of how slowly things were growing and, and the church had been. And then, and then he described how he bailed. And he knew that God had promised more for that place and promised him more in that place. And, and shortly after he bailed, the church actually broke out and grew like crazy and became one of the leading churches in America at the time. And Tom kind of forlornly sat across the table, tired, and just said, you know, I wonder, I wonder if God can ever fulfill that promise through me. Or I wonder if I blew it and the promise is gone. It's a tough question, isn't it? That some, maybe many of us may feel at times like we 
bailed on something. Maybe we, maybe we gave up on a dream or a promise under the weight of it, trying to make that dream happen. It was just too heavy, too much to carry. Or, or maybe we missed it and we failed to follow God and lead well. Maybe, maybe you bailed on a job or a career path or, or maybe you bailed on a relationship, a, a friendship or a partnership, or maybe even a marriage or a family and, and you, you reap the painful results of that. Or maybe, maybe you've abandoned the sense of promise God has spoken over your life in the past about the sense of the purpose and the calling for your life, but it's been too difficult to carry that or you messed it up. And you wonder, did I, did I blow it too much? Is that promise gone? Or maybe the situation isn't like Tom's. Maybe the situation for you is someone else bailed and left your promise, your dream in ashes as a result. To be honest, one of my greatest fears in life is taking back control from God and short-circuiting God's promise over my life or giving up too soon and bailing and making, or, or, or making something happen but the wrong something happen. See, I suspect that it was this powerful blood path experience for Abraham and that, that recognition that God was the only one who walked through there and the promise of that that helped Abraham return to God and return to the promise even when he was unfaithful. And when he returns, we actually see another altar that none of us men want to talk about because it's an altar of circumcision, so we're going to skip that one today. Abraham, the story continues, and, and finally he has a miraculous, his miraculous son Isaac, and God takes Abraham to a new final altar, a new test in Genesis 22, verse 1, we're going to start. It says this, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, and Abraham responded saying, here am I. And God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. God seems to do that with Abraham. Go and I'll show you. <laughs> it would have been enough if God had simply said, take your son. But notice how God qualifies this in three ways. He says, take your son, your only son, not, not forgetting about Ishmael, but, but trying to get to this promised son of Isaac, this, this son that they had been waiting for, the dream to be fulfilled for over 25 years, the son whom you love, he qualifies. And I think God does this extra verbiage qualification, and I think it's meant to reassure Abraham that God knows what he's asking. He knows the depth of love that Abraham has and the depth of faith invested in this and how painful it's going to be for him to touch this in what he's asking. Abraham knows and understands that God knows the cost if he obeys. So let's be clear what God is asking at this point. He wanted Abraham to travel with his son to Moriah, which is present-day Jerusalem. He wanted him to build an altar of stone and then uh, on one of the mountains, and, and then he would make a platform of wood on the stone, and Abraham would tie up and bind his son Isaac and lay him on the wood, and he would take a knife and he would slit Isaac's throat in the same way that he would sacrifice a lamb that he was slaying. And finally, he would light the wood on fire and burn his son's body, offering it to God. This is not a children's bedtime story. At this point, Abraham had only two options, either obey or don't. 
But the writer actually wants us to think a little bit more about this and see some other things. God had already promised to make Abraham the head of a great nation and through his nation to be a blessing to the entire earth. And God said that it was through Isaac that he would raise up this nation of descendants. But but that couldn't happen if Isaac, a young unmarried teenager, was dead. And, And here we're faced with what seems like an absolutely impossible, enormous contradiction. If Abraham obeys the command... Does not, doesn't that cancel the promise if Isaac's dead? If he disobeys the command of God, he breaks the covenant and he forfeits God's guarantee and the promise. Here's a glimpse, I think, in this moment of the many altars God has brought Abraham through in his life and the character that resulted. Abraham didn't know how God would do it. He just knew that God would somehow fulfill the promise. Hebrews 11 actually comments on this, Abraham, in this way. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had promised, received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, there are times, maybe a lot more times than we'd like to admit in life, when our only job as a follower of Jesus is to take the next step of obedience. And we aren't called to figure it out. We aren't called to understand the big picture or to even be able to explain where it will lead. We may not even know how God is going to do it. But God is asking us to obey and trust Him. And that's really, really hard. And our intellectual only do what makes sense world, isn't it? Hebrews shows us something that's only hinted at in Genesis 2, but let's look at those hints in Genesis 2. Abraham intimates that he expects that somehow, some way, God is going to work things out and that Isaac would live. When he saw Moriah in the distance and he, and he gave instruction to his servants in Genesis 22, verse 5, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the, body, the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back. Did, did you get that? We will come back. Not I. We will come back. Abraham believed that he and his son would somehow return. Then as the two of them were walking along with Isaac carrying the wood for the sacrifice, Isaac asked his father, where's the lamb for the burnt offering in verse 7? And Abraham's reply in verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So Abraham reasoned from what he knew about God to what he knew about the situation. And the only thing he could come up with was, I'm going to put my own son to death, and then God's going to raise him from the dead. No one in history had ever been raised from the dead at that point. Jesus didn't come for another 2,000 years. Now, we know the ending of the story. God stopped Abraham. He provided a ram stuck in a thicket, and Isaac and Abraham did indeed return. But today as we stand back and look at this, we can see it with clear perspective. Did God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? Yes. Was it a legitimate request? Yes. Did Abraham know how things were going to turn out in the end? No. Specifically, did he know there was going to be a ram in the thicket? No, he didn't know that. Well, then what did Abraham know? He knew that God had asked him to do it. And he knew that God had promised 
to give him a son. And Isaac was that son through whom God would bless the world. What he didn't know was how God was going to reconcile the promise to bless the world and his command to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. So what are we supposed to take away from the story of Abraham and Isaac? I think when I read Genesis 22, I'm struck by something that God said to Abraham after the great trial was over. God commends Abraham saying, you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. God says, I asked for your most precious possession and you gave it to me. Absolute dependence and trust. See, greatness of faith Walking into the greatest of all dreams and promises and seeing them fulfilled is God's job and God's promise. But as God leads us on the journey to the fulfillment of those dreams, he leads us to a place and many altars that bring us to the place of trusting him above all else and finding our identity in him only. Because isn't it true A lot of our successes, a lot of our dreams that we've seen fulfilled or want to see fulfilled, that they define our identity. And God says, I I, want to give you those dreams. I want to bless you with this. My intent is always to do that. But I want your identity in me. If it were me, I would take some more time and share share with you all the lessons of the altars that Abraham encountered because there's a lot of them we didn't cover, but we don't have time today unless you want to be here till 5 o'clock. Anybody want to be here till 5 o'clock? Okay, so uh, Genesis 15 and 22 are the altars that I think are the most profound. This God and this blood path clearly shows us that he himself guarantees the promise and he will take the penalty for our failure. So when Abraham failed with Ishmael, it was that promise, that powerful image of love and promise from God that allowed him and invited him back to returning to God because he understood who God really was. And my friend Tom, God continued to fulfill his promise through him allowing him about two to three years later to write a best-selling Christian leadership and mission book and go on to live the dream that he felt like he forfeited in that previous other churches and in, in, in other churches as well. And that's, that's what I think God wants to do in our lives today through this message. I think he wants to take the weight of the promises and dreams of our lives off of us. And he wants to invite you back in some areas of your life where you feel like you've messed up, maybe forfeited the dream because you think you had the dream and you messed up. But in reality, God's got the dream. And God still has the dream. So God wants to breathe life back into those dreams for you. What are those dreams you've given up on now? that God is stirring to pick up again. For others, you're asking, uh, God is asking you for your Isaac. You have been so driven by a dream, worked so hard, and maybe you're even seeing it fulfilled, and God has always wanted to bless you with that, but he wants, what he wants far more is he wants you and your heart. He wants your unconditional trust and obedience, and so he's asking you, to make a sacrifice that doesn't seem like it makes sense in your life right now. So the application for each of our lives from today's message, I think they actually apply to our Lenten leap of faith 
process that we're in right now, if, uh, especially in regard to the three daily prayers and the three questions we're asking you to consider doing throughout Lent. If you didn't get a guide last week for the Leap of Faith, we have them out on a little table by the main entrance out there. You can take them and go home and, and you can do that. I encourage you to pick one up. We're, what we're asking is through this Leap of Faith, is, it's an annual Lenten tradition around here at Quest, and, and we, it's a time when we take time to practice some spiritual habits, to go deeper with God and to go deeper in expressing and knowing how to express the love of God to others. And you can choose which practices to do, uh, but we strongly encourage that if you only choose one, you choose the three daily prayers and the three accompanying questions that go along with it. You can find those questions in the handout. I'm not going to go over those again today. Uh, But today, for now, back to Abraham. I want you to ask God if he wants you to respond to any of these questions. How is God wanting you to release to him the burden, the weight, the responsibility of a dream that you've been carrying? Or maybe what dream is God asking you to allow him to breathe new life back into that you felt like was gone, trashed, maybe because of your actions or somebody else's? Or maybe this question God will speak to you through. What dream is God asking you to make a sacrifice to him related to that? Would you stand with me as we pray? God, you are so amazing, awesome, beautiful, powerful to to include the story of a simple businessman from 4,000 years ago who can still inspire our faith today can still inspire us to, to know the depth of your love, to know what that looks like, and to receive that and to walk into all the good, all the promises, all the dreams that you have for us. Lord, thank you that you speak over each and every one of us that I want to bless you to make you a blessing. Lord, I pray pray specifically, especially for the people here who feel like I've trashed that dream, I've lost that dream, I've undercut that dream, I've bailed on it, it's, it's gone. Father, I pray right now that your spirit would come and that you would touch that place in the heart and mind of people right now here and that you would begin to breathe life into that because God... If that's a promise from you, you've still got that promise. It's not gone away. It's still there. You still want to give the joy of that. So Holy Spirit, just come. And as we continue to worship, would you, would you come to each one of us in the way that you can and, and stir the thoughts, stir the memories that would allow us to respond to you today with a step of obedience and a step of joy in the promise and the dream you have for us. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.com. That's G-O-T-O-West dot org. 
Thanks for listening.